at Jared. We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Uh, happy bye week. Happy bye week. The fighting buys come to town. We are six and a half point favorites, as Sean pointed out on Monday. I have more faith than usual we can beat the buys. Um, Scott Schaefer made things look a little close for a few years there, but uh, yeah, I think the streak's going to continue. Yeah, I mean, the buy's just been kind of uh, listless this year. Obviously, the offense, I think, will catch them off guard. They haven't faced an offense like this. Um, I mean, they played Texas, but, you know, everyone everyone played Texas well this year. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I think we'll, uh, we'll definitely notch one this weekend for sure. Way to go, team. Um, so, yeah, last week we faced uh, Boston College. The, <laughs> the uh, fighting buys. The fighting buys. <laughs> their offense... Colloquially on by week. <laughs> and uh meathead Steve Adazio, who's definitely getting fired. And yeah, did you did you catch that whole aftermath, not just with like our stuff, but then what he was saying um about hating criticism and on social media and he was talking about like Twitter muscles and all this other crap. And he sounded like Scott Schaefer. And it was really funny to watch him, like, kind of unwind. Like, he thought that he was, like, engendering some sort of, like, sympathy from the fan base. And then, like, I saw, like, all the guys at BCI just pretty much, like, lit him on fire in the comments. Yeah, I mean, it was very familiar. Um, <laughs> Steve, like... Similar hey, playbook. Ad- similar playbook, which is not surprising because Adazio and Steve, and, I mean, it's actually kind of weird. It's actually weird because Adazio is an offensive guy. But, um, hey, Adazio, the reason that people don't like you as a coach is because your quarterbacks went 7 for 20 for 64 yards. Right. Like, you, you've completed nine passes against us in the last two against seasons a combined. Against dreadful pass defense. Like one of the Like a, a, a really bad pass defense both years. Um, it's just – it's I don't, I don't know. It, it was right out of the same playbook as Schaefer last year, um, trying to divert blame or, like, push uh, the folks on other things, whether it's ISIS or Twitter or – Literally anything else, uh, the the thing with Brad Whitney on the sideline, which was weird, and, you know, obviously there was something happened there, but it wasn't, like, the focal point of the reason BC lost. No. So, um, yeah, nice one for Syracuse. Uh, the fact that they've now moved the ball effectively and scored some points against two really good, or I'd say one really good defense and one... Inflated by know. garbage opponent's defense. Yeah, but also still, like, fairly good. Still top 40, um, but definitely yeah, not the top 10 ranking they were coming in with. No, I think BC was probably, like, a top 30 to 40, and VT, Vatek is, like, in the probably 10 to 15 range. I like, I, legitimately. And uh, Syracuse put up good numbers in its book. Not, not great numbers, you know, what this offense will be in a couple of years, but, like, first year against teams that were very well. I mean, if anything, BC and Vatek, are both really well established on the, on the defensive side. Um, obviously, Virginia Tech brought in its whole you know defensive coaching staff for the most part from uh, the last staff, uh, and BC's the whole same staff, except for you know 
Uh, they lost their defensive coordinator, but it's still like the same defense and everything. Um, and they, you know, they did really well. Dungey continues to put up like top ten historical passing games in the in the Syracuse record books pretty much every week. And he was also super efficient this week. Eleven point four yards an attempt, which in some games this year he's put up like big numbers, but the yards per attempt haven't been there. Like he was getting the ball downfield, and making big chunk plays, which is nice. So uh, I'll, I mean, there are still things to take away, and you know, the running attack was nothing, you know, nothing to write home about. Although BC's pretty good against the run, but uh, I think we should. Good. It's never good, and it was about the same this week. The passing game, I thought the spread, spreading the ball was really impressive. You had four guys that were over seventy-eight yards. Um, I, I think there was a lot to be very happy about. Yeah, I mean, you bring up some good points on the offense, and it's funny because I know you said there, like, you know, it, it was it was a good game, wasn't it? Wasn't a, a game that would that would look like it would in a couple of years, and like. All that said, and like we definitely don't think the offense performed to its the, the the top of its capabilities. They still managed 532 yards against this defense, half in a rainstorm. So yeah, I, I'm I'm very very encouraged by the future here, and I think you know people said that after the Virginia Tech game, there was reason to be optimistic even after the Colgate game. But I think what what, you, what we've seen for two straight weeks here is just. A, uh, a distinct and uh, and clear ability for this team to move the football. And, and yes, they're not finishing drives necessarily as much as we'd like them to. But the fact that we have, you know, them finishing drives enough. The fact that we have them again putting up over 500 yards of offense two straight weeks against very good defenses. Um, like you said, Dungy efficient as hell, 32 for 38. Um, you know, what he was doing against that defense was a clinic in, in how to run this kind of, you know, up-tempo spread. Um, I you know I've mentioned this a couple times now. Uh, the announcers, you know, talked about it a little bit about what this offense was doing to BC and forcing them to really, like, you know, kind of sell it on the blitz if they had any chance of stopping um, SU from moving the ball. And it was, you know, every time they went man-to-man, uh, there was always going to be a linebacker uh, matched up with one of the slot receivers, and that's how you saw those couple seam plays with Phillips and Esteem, because you know they don't have the personnel at BC necessarily to, to trot out a guy for nickel. Also, if you're going to trot out a guy to play a nickel package, you're probably going to give up a little bit more in the run game. Um, but every time they played zone, um, it allowed for you know some real soft holes right around the line of scrimmage. And when you have really fast guys uh, like pretty much all four of our, our starting receivers and the only guys who, who see the field for the most part at the receiver spot, um, any of those four guys, if you give them a couple of yards, they're at least going to gain you five, um, as we've seen all season. So again, like, it just put BC in a quandary, and, and I don't think that you know things are solved necessarily. Obviously, we only scored 28 points. Uh, we still stalled out a bunch in like the you know BC 40 to 25 range, which is frustrating, but... You're starting to see Dungy really figure out the formula that works for him and works for this offense. And, I mean, 434 yards is, is incredible. Um, I felt like it was a largely effortless 434 yards as well. Um, obviously, he was under pressure a bit, but by and large, it felt like he threw the ball incredibly well. He had some of the best passes I've probably ever seen from him. Um, I called out a couple of them in the play-calling article um, where he just kind of laid it right into receivers' hands. Um, and, and I think we're going to see more and more growth there and, and – you know, Dan, looking forward to, like, next year, imagine Dungy, yes, without Edatawo and yes, without Esteem, but with an offensive line that, that that's probably going to be better next year, you have to love what what's going to happen next. Yeah, I think, 
A, I don't think it's a huge stretch, and we finally saw him put together like a really good game. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say Ishmael might maybe not put up these numbers that Adetawa was putting up, but like kind of fill that hole as like the the clear number one. I mean, oh, he's, yeah. this has been like weirdly like I, it's not as it's his best statistical season, which obviously based on the offense it was going to be. It's like it's almost like his most underwhelming season, and then you look and he's still like making good plays, and I, I think. Part of the thing is that Adetawa has been so good that it's just kind of taking the shine off him a little bit. But uh, this was, like, his first really big, like, performance. Right. Um, the 8 for 108 and a touchdown. The touchdown catch was gorgeous. Um, he could have had another one. He could have had another one. And Esteem could have had another one. Here. Esteem could have had another one. Yeah, Ishmael's lost at least two touchdown passes. Ishmael also, I pointed this out on the Sunday post about stats, Ishmael's, like, ninth all-time in receptions now at SU. Like, yep, and I'm, next year, I mean, I think he'll be going for, like, an 80-90 reception year, for sure. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because I remember, like, in Bill Connolly's post previewing the season, you know, one of his one of his big points about wide receivers was, you know, draft Steve Ishmael for your, uh, for your college football fantasy team. And it's funny that, like, that didn't come to fruition, and it obviously did for somebody else in Ahmed Atawo, but um, I, I think maybe that prediction might have just been a year ahead, and you look at... You know what's what's coming down the pike. You have three, uh, you know, guys who run a sub four five forty potentially coming in for twenty seventeen right now. Uh, you have Riley and Butler. Um, I don't really know what Butler's injury is, and we never really saw him like leave the field with an injury against Wake Forest. And, but he's been out the last two weeks now. Um, Riley seems like a guy with promise. Um, what I'd like to see, though, I think Butler and Riley fill more roles in the slot position. So you have to hope that at least two of the guys that come in are going to be a little bit more uh, geared towards those deeper routes that, you know, eventually Steve Eshmael is going to graduate um, after next season. Um, and, I mean, or knock on wood, who knows what happens after this year. Um, and obviously at Atalo and, and, and Esteem, to a lesser extent, are both gone after this year. Yeah, I mean, I really like how it seems like the last two weeks and this week especially, we've kind of seen, like, these guys kind of filling in where they were supposed to. And, and obviously there isn't as much... Um, rotating in and out and uh, it, you know you don't have the freshmen coming in as much but you, you kind of have very defined roles for the four receivers and they both seem very comfortable or they all seem very comfortable with where they are and you, you saw this week with all of them putting together among their better performances of the year um, and, and the fact that Dungey is able to get them all the ball is, is really nice because it seems like he's really finding his place in the offense as well. Agreed and I think like that's one thing that folks are going to notice more and more and I think National pundits are starting to come around to a little bit. I mean, no, Dungy's not going to be looking at All-America consideration or even All-Conference consideration, despite the numbers. But what you're seeing now is a more complete quarterback. I mean, you still don't love the, the called you know, quarterback draws, but at the same time, like, how else are we going to move the ball? Um, he, he made some really smart, heady runs. I felt like he picked up some big yardage when we really needed it um, against BC, um, including that big kind of third-down conversion um, you know, to kind of, you know, seal the win um, and extend that drive. He just, you can tell him, we said this last year too, like he's somebody who is getting better and better each week he plays and, and the best medicine for him is just more reps um, and more game time. He's, he's a smart guy, he's a cerebral guy. Yes, he's going to make some, some risk-related mistakes. Um, obviously that fumble in the fourth quarter was also a bit rough to watch, but I mean, again, by and large, like, you look at what he was doing early in the season where he pretty much just came out every game and threw to Irv Phillips four to seven times, 
through to Edetawa when he wasn't thrown to Phillips and then ignoring Esteem and uh, Ishmael completely. And now you're seeing a guy who, you know, stays in rhythm, stays on point with the offense, like keeps the team moving on his own. Um, he made two gorgeous throws on the run um, against the Eagles. And, and in general, he just, yeah, he's finally, like you said, spreading the ball around and understanding where each uh, receiver fits into this offense. You can really help him, again, continue to succeed and continue to, to make this offense look better and better each week. Because you know what, like, I think yeah, Bill Connolly mentioned this, and I think you and me have mentioned this too, like, we're not seeing the points that we necessarily expected with this Syracuse team this year, but the fact that the yardage is there, and it's, it's really just, I think in large part, offensive line related issues and and maybe some some turnover problems that related to youth the fact that the yardage is there and 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 the and the penetration into the uh, opposing zone is there already like you're seeing a team that is managing to to get into the opponent's side of the field you know 60 70 percent of drives like to me that that that's frustrating now but it does give hints of something that's going to uh, flip the switch is going to flip um excuse me once the off again, once the offensive line issues get set, but once this team is is you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen games into the new system come next year. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that we were looking for this season was this like active development that you didn't have to like look that hard to identify, and the fact that it's coming with Dungey um, is is really uh, really cool. So I, I think uh, it's 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 too early to like just make this determinations on what the season is or what like Syracuse has been this year but I think we've probably hit the four win I mean we've hit the four win mark that you probably would have generally signed for um you obviously traded like you thinking you beat Wake Forest or then definitely thinking you would not beat Virginia Tech and you swapped those two um obviously NC State's a winnable game though Syracuse won't be favored at all um you know maybe you can talk yourself into stealing pit but like I think overall it's hard to Unless something disastrous happens down the stretch here, I think it's hard to uh, say anything. But the series, the season has has at least hit like the the solid like B mark in terms of success. Now, if they make a bowl, if they go out and and beat NC State and slip in the APR, or even somehow get another upset, um, obviously Pitt is a lot more likely than Florida State or Clemson. Then I think it's a solid A. But uh, overall, I think it's hard to not be happy with what this series, this season has become uh, for Syracuse, especially. Because you can just watch game after game and, and see how much better this team has looked the last two weeks than it did, you know, weeks two and three. Yeah, you know what? I mean, and, and you and I bring this up almost every single week. This is looking more and more like Doug Marone's first year. Um, it's you, you look at it and you see four and eight as a likely scenario, but even then you, you see an easy path to how it could have been six and six, just like you did that year. There's one like, you know, what the F game. And I think that's going to be the Wake Forest game. And, and no matter what happens with the rest of Babers tenure, they are going to look back and say like, that's going to be the game where you kind of scratch your head a little bit. You understand in part, but you know, it's still going to be that, you know, damn, if we could just get that one back. Um, I'd say that there were maybe, there were at least two of those games um, in, in Marone's first season. Uh, and I think Baber so far has won. Um, but yeah, you, you see a lot of these similarities, but you see that kind of clear development. Um, you see the clear change right from the get-go, and then you see that development and, and, and progress over the course of year one um, that shows you a, a much better product than, than what was inherited. And I think so far, I mean, again, we're eight games in, you can already see it's a much better product than what was inherited. And I think by the end of the year, even if we lose out, 
um, everyone should be able to, to look at that given the schedule and, and given what we were up against as a success and, and as a clear sign that, you know, things are, are moving ahead very nicely. Dan, you're muted. Yeah, my phone likes to do this thing where, like, there was blank, so I can't unmute myself when I go to try to press it. That's sometimes. Fine. Yeah, it's really annoying. Um, yeah, man, I pretty much agree with everything you said there. It, it's just overall, like, you don't want to start talking about like outlooks on seasons uh, when there's still four games left. But unfortunately, two of those games are Clemson and Florida State. And I think this year was was we entered this year with such like a being so cognizant of the rebuild that we were in that I, I think it's it's okay to like start to piece together you know, here's how this is gone. And, and it really has filled expectations. I think we, we were promised like an exciting offense. And while things are definitely not, you know, firing on all cylinders, I think we definitely have gotten that, especially compared to the last couple of years. Like it was hard to not be more exciting. And it, it's definitely a, a lot more uh, so. And I almost like one of my great fears of this year was like the Babers offense would be installed and it just like would not even come close to resembling what he had at other schools and like it being a Syracuse problem. And, mm-hmm. That's definitely not borne out. Like the, this, I mean, you have Dungey tossing for 400 yards and running for 50 like every week now. That, if anything, it's like very much resembles at least in the, the passing part of the stat book. Like it, it's it, exactly what we thought we were going to get. Um, obviously, efficiency isn't quite where it is, and then the running game is is a whole other issue. But we kind of know where the issues are there, which is good. Like it's not like a mystery why the running game is bad. The offensive line has injuries all over the place and an experience all over the place, and you can just watch it and identify that where. Um, you know, the passing game, I think, has been, you know, it, it's not firing, you know, exactly what it will be in two years. But the fact that they can toss for 400 yards in between attack at all, even without a running game, is uh, is pretty impressive. So um, I'm pretty, pretty happy. I feel very good. I think probably feel as I think we said this last week, like as good as I felt as a Syracuse fan as I did heading into the 2014 season. And I don't expect a, a similar uh, collapse in the next year or so. So. Pretty good. Too true, too true. Um, switching gears a little bit uh, <coughs> to basketball, but first I wanted to point out, and I don't know why I've never noticed this before, do you know the name of Toledo Stadium? I do not. It's the Glass Bowl. Now, <laughs> now why, it's not a bowl. Now, now why, why this isn't a source of, of comedy on a weekly basis for college football, I'm not sure. Um, I would think, you know, I mean, granted, uh, Toledo's not like Akron or, or Miami of Ohio, where you say, like, you know, the glass ball is broken, I, I think would be a, a common refrain. I'm going to, I'm looking now, I'm assuming it was named after someone named Glass, because it doesn't make any sense otherwise, <laughs> but also it's not a bowl, like it's a stadium. It's very clearly I mean, un- bowl like I mean, I guess. If you wanted it to be. But, I mean, it's not, it's not like filled on every side. I don't know. I'm, I'm picking Nits. I, I need to find out why it's named after. Uh, let's see. No. Following World War II, the stadium was renovated with many glass elements. Because of this and the city's concentration of, on the industry, the stadium is named the glass. It's like, that's something that should be like the nickname. It's like legitimately named the glass bowl. And then Toledo's article about it on, on uh, utrockets.com. Glass bowl, one of America's great football stadiums. <laughs> one of... How many? How many is on that? How many stadiums are in that list? Like Glass one Bowl, of America's four hundred greatest football stadiums. 
We're not going to tell you which, but it's one of them. Uh, anyway, that was just... What are the glass-like elements? I, I, I'm so confused. Like, we're going to derail this whole podcast. Well, it's like, what are the glass-like elements? Well, why would you have glass elements in a place like Toledo that definitely gets really cold in the winter? I feel like it's not going to help you. Also, in my, in my eternal wisdom, Googling glass bowl just brings you up a lot of glass bowls. Which, again, now we've come full circle on the conversation. This is, this is what, like... The SEO is terrible. They did not think this through in 1936. No. They did not, they did not think about the, uh, the SEO ramifications of naming your stadium the glass bowl. Way to go, guys. So, moving back on topic, before we get off topic again later in the podcast, I'm sure. That's why I pulled up this week's schedule, and that's how I got to the glass bowl jokes. Um... ACC Media Day was today, and for listeners, yesterday, uh, down in Charlotte, uh, there was a whole lot of, you know, attending press, a lot of ESPN-related features. Uh, Jim Beheim was on SportsCenter. Um, he was also on ESPNU, along with Tyler Roberson and Blanc Coleman. Um, we finished fifth in the uh, media preseason poll. Dan, does that sound about right to you, based on what, kind of what's been said about the league um, in the long offseason? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not totally shocked. It seems like everyone has been a good deal, like less excited about this team than the Syracuse fans have been, which I guess makes sense. Um, yeah, that's fine. I think I would probably slide them in like third or fourth, but I'm also like have been mystified by the uh, ramification, like the everything that comes with the transfers. Like I've just been my head, my mind has been wrapped around like all the different rotation possibilities and how much potential this team has. So I think fifth is there for like the national. Um, media who in the ACC media who's less focused on that but uh, I, I think I maintain that I expect Syracuse to be one of the best teams in the ACC this year by far and I think it speaks more to like the depth of the ACC yeah you know and I think you know Jim Beheim talked about that a lot um, and like I, I kind of said in, in the post I wrote up about his remarks on SportsCenter like he, he made some comparisons to this year's ACC versus the 2011 Big East which had 11 teams in the tournament. I think there's some similarities just in terms of tournament-caliber teams, but I think that the uh, quality at the top um, for the ACC is probably a lot stronger. Um, I, I think you, you look up and down. Like, that Big East had maybe two or three teams at most that were looked at as national title contenders. I think there's five clear national title contenders um, in, in the ACC. I think, I think Duke's a clear number one here. Um, and then I think North Carolina is a, a pretty sizable bet at number two. But, you know, three through five, I think in any order, like, I, I'd, I'd be fine with Syracuse finishing anywhere in that three through five area. Um, Virginia and Louisville have also added, you know, high-profile transfers. Austin Nichols is considered a potential all-ACC, you know, or even play of the year candidate. Um, transfer over from Memphis to Virginia, and, and he's someone who, who's supposed to, you know, kind of get UVA right back on track. Um, after losing Malcolm Brogdon and some others. Um, yeah, again, it, it's a media preseason poll. I'm fine with fifth. I, I don't really care. It's, I, I think anywhere in that one through five spot is, is you're looked at as an elite program and one that's going to contend for a Final Four berth. And I think, you know, going forward, at least as things stand right now, that five um, are, are the, in some order again every year, the five teams that, that are going to carry the banner for the ACC. And as long as those five are performing well, um, the ACC is fine. I mean, it definitely helps, though, that 
you look down the rest of this list, then I mean the, the, the margin between NC State at 6, which I don't buy at all, um, and Virginia Tech at 10 is, is razor thin. Um, I think you'd even go as far down as Wake, maybe even Georgia Tech. I've seen Georgia Tech projected as, as high as like 8th um, by some folks. Um, really, everything 6 through 14 is pretty fluid, uh, except for 15. Um, Boston College obviously being absolute trash um, as an athletic program other than hockey um, and having no idea how to run a basketball program or football program. Um, BC brought in three grad transfers this year to try to uh, stop some of the bleeding. But when you make a bad hire, um, I can't necessarily say that just getting the players you think you need is what's going to fix it. Yeah, I mean, do we think BC, uh, do they get an ACC to win this year? I'm going to say they probably get one, right? Here's the problem. I think they're better, but I think everybody else is also better. Like, every like every single team here is better than they were last year. Yeah. I, it, it, I mean, the, the the league as a whole, I think, t- takes a pretty big step forward. And like like you said, I, I, it, I struggle to see a team that's not at least as good as it were last year. Right. And, and, and like, and, and that's the thing. You look at this league compared to last year, like... This is the same league that got four teams into the Elite Eight, two teams into the Final Four, set a record for the most teams in the Sweet 16 for one conference. Like, the fact that that league got better is mind-blowing, and that's a really bad sign for Boston College and, to a lesser extent, you know, the Wake Forest and Georgia Techs of the world. I think if you wanted to make a demarcation line, you could after Pitt. Um, I think a 12th-place team in any conference is in a bad state of affairs except for in the ACC where a 12th place Pitt could easily play themselves up to a 7th place finish yeah Pitt has like 4 starters back and they were pretty decent last year like I honestly I think Pitt's probably a little underrated even within the, the terms of the ACC but like the fact that it's conceivable for them to finish 12th with like bringing back a lot of talent and being a, a generally reliable solid team at worst like that tells you all you need to know about this league yeah, and I mean, you look down the list too, like 12 teams received votes in the initial coaches poll. Now, yes, it's the coaches poll. I'd like to put a little more stock in the AP poll, perhaps. Um, I think you'll also see a better... The AP poll also give you a much better kind of view of which of these teams might be able to join that top five group, um, especially after the first few weeks, because I feel like, you know, again, the ACC media is going to be North Carolina heavy. They're going to be Virginia heavy. Um those traditional powers are always going to get more votes, and that's probably how you get an NC State at six. Um, despite I'd I'd put Florida State ahead of them, maybe Virginia Tech and Miami as well. Um, I know Clemson got some love in the Ken Pomeroy initial rankings, um, and yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Pitt's a little underrated, but um, yeah, the the AP poll is at least a little bit more indicative of, of a at least from you know Texas eastward better view of, of what's going on in college basketball while coaches, you know, obviously it, whether it's them or interns, there's definitely a little bit of kind of throwaway polling that can and does happen. Some name recognition stuff that can and does happen. There's no way that, especially if you don't play most of these teams and a lot of them, a lot of these coaches don't, that, that you really truly know, you know, what's going on in each of these programs and can, and, you know, properly evaluate 25 teams uh, without them playing a game. I think the media, it's their job. No, they're not perfect, especially when it comes to covering West Coast teams. But I, I would trust their metrics a little bit more. I'm looking forward to seeing that initial AP poll when it comes out to see if SU is closer to 17th or so like they were in the coaches poll or if we see a bit of a rise 
um, based on you know just the media taking some more time to digest and understand uh, the additions there. Yeah, I, I am interested to see it as well. Um, and I, anytime like I, I see the AP poll or the coaches poll and like comparison between the two, I think to myself, how long do you think Jim Beheim spends filling this out? And and this is you, zero hey, point you move, zero minutes. It, that's that's the correct answer because you know he has like his sub fill it out or or an intern. But he has like but, rules. you know he has rules though. Oh, like, like who like, can only be uh, so high? Yeah, like I'm sure he has a rule. Like I'm sure a, I'm sure Jim Beheim hates Ben Majors. I am sure. That, oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure. Unless they, they've beaten him before. Yeah, unless they've beaten him. I'm sure he says that he probably has a Syracuse can go no lower than X, but no higher than Y because he never wants to be the person who votes SU the highest. I think he has before. I think he's been the voter when we've been number one, and it's been like unanimous. Unanimous, yes, but I mean, like as far as like he never wants to be like the only guy. Oh, yeah. Like, I think he says, like, no higher than X because he wants to make sure that, like, he's not the the outlier. Yeah, for sure. In the voting process. And I feel like, I feel like he's, he'll definitely favor ACC teams because he understands the, the optics of, especially ones that we're going to face, understands the optics of beating a ranked team versus not, even if at the end of the year they may not be one. Also, like, back when we were in the Big East, you know he voted for, like, 11 Big East teams every week. Oh, yeah, he did. <laughs> I, I, you know what? If you if it was up to him, he would make the entire top twenty-five. Now be the old Big East, um, <laughs> the ACC, and I don't know. Pick a team. He probably just put Cornell in there. <laughs> this is my top twenty-five. Eat it, America. Um, on that note. What have you been drinking, Dan? Give it some halftime, then continue on to more basketball stuff and college football schedule. Um, I'd say the most fall-ish thing I had uh, was on Monday, uh, I was in Brooklyn and had a Catstill Brewery, uh, their Oktoberfest. Obviously, it's an upstate brewery. Um, really nice. I think I, with Oktoberfest, like, it feels like everyone just kind of dips into the same well, and, and a lot of them taste very, very similar. And this wasn't very different from that. But I think a, a solid Oktoberfest is a, a very drinkable, good beer, um, and it's hard for... I don't find a lot of bad Oktoberfests, so it was definitely cool with that. Uh, and then last Friday, there was actually a Syracuse alumni event down in the Financial District, which had specials on Oscar Blues. Uh, so I had a bunch of Pinners, I had a bunch of Dales, I had a bunch of Deviant Dales. Um, all, I think I had a... Ma, uh, not a Maharaja, uh, not Oscar Blues, but I think I, I believe I had a, a Cigar City, uh, High Lie. Um yeah, so a bunch of that, which was all, all great. Uh, that was pretty much it. I, if, you know, if if my my standard drinking was like a bunch of Oscar Blues and a, and a High Ally, I think that's a pretty decent decent week. Agreed, agreed. Um, on my end, uh, I mentioned a couple times there is a great place over by the Hermosa Beach Pier uh, called Mediterraneo. Uh, and uh, their Friday happy hour deal from five to seven is buy one get one on small plates and half price uh, drafts. So they always have Russian River Blind Pig on, and I proceed to drink a lot of those. Um, also stopped over at um, Broughton Brow, this uh, German place right over there. Had a, a German IPA. It's a Brau Factum Pragusta from uh, Raderberger Group. So, yeah, that was pretty good. Um, definitely a little bit different than your traditional IPA, um, but did enjoy it. A uh, buddy of mine and I were... Uh, 
feeling like we wanted an aggressive nightcap, so we got the uh, we got the one liter steins each. That was a regrettable decision. Um, also had uh, breweries melange number ten. It was kind of like a horchata Mexican hot chocolate uh, hybrid kind of imperial uh, stout, which was very very good. Um, had a wiki wiki tart from uh, the brewery. Uh, was believe boysenberry. Uh, a few other things going on, just a standard sour ale. Uh, had a Captain's Daughter from uh, Gray Sale Brewing. A friend of mine sent that out. Uh, had, and then last night I was over at uh, Stable Center for the Kings Blue Jackets game and grabbed a uh, Torpedo Extra IPA from Sierra Nevada. That was my drinking. Very nice. Uh, I should mention, just as uh, news out here in the New York area, if you are a New York City area alum, the... Uh, Big Apple Orange has switched their official bar uh, for the season to Fifth and Mad, which is, as you can probably guess, on Fifth and Madison. Uh, I have not been there yet, but it should be pretty good. Obviously, last year we were at Social, which got really, really awesome down the stretch of the tournament. Uh, so hopefully we'll see some of you guys uh, see you around there. That is, you know, I know it just happened. So for those in the city who listen to this, uh, that is the new spot. I am mostly positive we're still at the same place, the parlor in West Hollywood over here, if I had to guess. And if I'm not there, if I'm coming from work, I will be in Hoboken, and the Syracuse alumni spot in Hoboken is Hoboken Bar and Grill, which I have been to a lot of, like, bid Mondays for, and I know they are looking to up their attendance as well. So you may find me, and you can buy me a drink, or you can ask me to buy you a drink, uh, in one of those two places for Syracuse basketball this year. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, also speaking of football this weekend, I, uh, as I mentioned before, I will be headed out to uh, Utah, be at the Utah-Washington game. Should be a great time. I'll be at game day. Uh, I will definitely... What time do you have to be up for game day? Like 6 a.m.? Um, well, out... See, Pacific time zone, game day starts at 6. Mountain time oh, so zone, it's... at least 7. Yeah. Not too bad. Not too bad. So uh, my buddies and I will definitely be bringing a sign that says uh, it's not their fault they didn't know. I That's fully, fantastic. I fully expect to be on game day. <laughs> so I, I would hope that, that any of the listeners or commenters grabs themselves a screenshot because uh, that, that will be a good time. Because based on how much ESPN's gone all in on that quote and that speech, I feel like it seems pretty likely. We also never see Syracuse stuff uh, when we're not involved in game day, so I feel like it'll be an anomaly in some ways. Yeah, uh, if only we had like the Clemson game this week, because that would be hilarious if you had like a Dabo themed. <laughs> Dabo <would>. didn't know. <laughs> it's not his. Fault. And then then we'd proceed to get beaten by forty five because Dabo would use it as disrespect. But yeah, he would. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, so I'll be there, and I'll have plenty of uh, Utah beers to report back on next week. Since they are they allowed to brew beer in Utah? They are, surprisingly. They have laws around what they can and can't brew and where they can and can't sell it, but they are allowed to brew it. Good for them. Yeah, way to go, guys. Okay, so um, do you need to talk any more college basketball, or can we switch back to what we usually prefer to talk about, which is college football, and all the games going on without Syracuse playing this week? Um, I'm fine talking college football. I mean, I feel yeah. like I feel like media day wasn't that great. I mean, our our representatives are Roberson and Coleman, and love those guys. Quiet. Maybe the most quiet, uh, non 
You weren't Nardell often, though. It's not like Benajay last year. Benajay is a total goofball. Like, Tyler Roberson, I feel like, would rather never speak to another human again if it was possible. The truth. He just, <laughs> uh, he just wants rebounds. That's all he wants. He just wants rebounds, no talks. Well, I know, like, I was talking, you know, that, that great uh, Donna DeTota um, feature about him over the summer, and I was talking to her about it. Like, look, has, has a more, has a four-year player at SU, have you ever known less about one? And she honestly said, like, she did not know a damn thing about him. Just because, like, he's so cut off. She said, like, he mentioned his brother or something, and she's, like, had no idea he had a brother. Like, zero clue. And, like, it's because he's just such a, like, closed-off guy. But, like, yeah, I, I, I can honestly say I don't think I've known this little about a four-year contributor as I do about Roberson. Especially when you compare him to, like, the last couple. Like, Rack, we knew everything about. Benajay, we learned a lot about in, like, the year of his star turn. Um, even Lydon, like, obviously he hasn't been here for four years, but, like, I feel like we know a lot about Tyler Lydon. We know that he likes to buy Chipotle and then eat it at Moe's, which is an absolutely <laughs> savage thing to do, and I appreciate it on a number of levels. Um, like, we, we, our basketball team, like, for a couple of years now has been very open and in, like, a, a mostly good way. Like, I think we, we've found out a lot about these guys' personalities, and they're uh, really interesting in, in a lot, a number of different ways. And Roberson is just not, and it's, and it's not like a bad thing at all. It's just, no. you know, how he chooses to live his life. Um, Roberson is definitely uh, one of the more, you know, closed off, and, and that's fine. I mean, he, it's not like he doesn't answer media questions, and he's not, like, put off, standoffish by any means. It's just very much, like, keeps to himself, and that's cool. Like, it, that's, that's who he is. So hopefully he has a nice breakout season, and we can learn a little bit more about him on his terms. Um, and there obviously was that awesome Donna piece, uh, and her profiles are always so good. Um, but, yeah, definitely not the uh, most exciting person you could have in terms of, like, quotes and, and drumming up uh, intrigue for the season at Media Days. But he's a senior, and he deserved, you know, the honor. So hopefully he had a good time down in, uh, was it in Charlotte? Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully I had a good time in Charlotte. No, yeah, definitely. And I think they know, want to. Like, that's the interesting thing with with, with you know, quieter guys in the SU team is like they're few and far between. I think because of the atmosphere that Jim kind of creates, it's very yes, we're always team based, and obviously the the zone defense is team based. But I feel like Jim does like to recruit individuals and and guys that can handle the spotlight and guys can handle pressure. And obviously, like you know, Syracuse is a small city, but during basketball season, I think the Syracuse fan base balloons tenfold, and and the pressures on you at SU are, are would rival. Uh, most of the other schools in the nation, um, say maybe Kentucky, Duke, and North Carolina. Um, so yeah, I, I think he kind of looks to recruit a certain type of guy, a certain at, you know type of attitude about him. And like you see a lot of the guys that succeed, you know, from you know Jerry to, to Eric Devendorf, from Malachi Richardson and Johnny Flynn, and, and I, again I, the list would go on. These are guys that you know embrace and, and and you know kind of bask in in the limelight you know for better or for worse and they kind of feed off of that um so it's interesting when we see you know a guy like roberson and i think again like su as fans we, we, we gravitate so much, so much toward these personalities and these individuals um that, that end up telling the story of su basketball um over the decades um and, and again it is interesting to see someone like roberson kind of you know toil away i mean even a guy like bay musicata um, I felt like we know, knew a ton about, and, and he kind of embraced it by the end, understanding like how much his personality told the story. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see um, if Roberson does the same. Dad. 
Yeah, I, I hate my phone. <laughs> I just did the thing again. It's like I'm sitting there looking at it and trying to unmute it. And it's just like every time I go to put my finger anywhere near it, it's like, nope, blank screen. Nope. Like, what? How, does this a fa- how is this a feature? Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think uh, a lot of it will be based on, you know, his play this year. He's, uh, he's, he's an interesting player. He's a uh, sometimes frustrating player. Uh, I do think if we get, like, a some sort of leap from him, though, I mean – at his best, he's such a unique talent, and he's this double-double machine who eats up some of the better teams on the schedule. It's not like he's you know only shows up against weak opponents, like people said about Rack heading into his senior year when he then exploded and became like a superstar. Um, Roberson does like I mean he kills Duke like that. His best games in his career are like I'd say probably three of his four best games ever against Duke. So uh, if he can bring that every night, it adds a, a crazy dimension to this team and this team that already has a lot of dimensions to speak of. Um, at least on paper. Too, too true. Um, so yeah, college football. I feel like we've we've talked way too much about basketball, considering how uh, how still in the middle of, of football season we are. We are going to have a season preview show. Uh, Dan and I just need to sort those details out. Um, I think we'll probably have have to try to do two separate podcasts for football and basketball that week. But again, these are things we'll deal with offline. Um, one of my favorite uh, college football happenings last week, um, Tulane's helmets. Um, Tulane didn't just put Wavy the Wave on the helmet. They put Wavy the Wave as the helmet, pretty much. Um, the only thing that would have made it better is if they decided to put his eyes on the front and then the wave going backwards, um, kind of like UConn's helmets, but no. And, and have his scowl painted on the, on, the, on the mask. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now that would have... Someday. <laughs> Someday. We can dream. Um, I saw that 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 uh, gigantic wave of the wave they have somewhere in the athletic department. I will definitely be uh, going to pay tribute down in uh, down in New Orleans before headed to Baton Rouge next year. Yeah, I, I I almost feel like like we joke about like you know sparking a fire under USC and all this. I I have to imagine that just because we te- we have some weird relationship with like the the Stant Tulane media out there uh, based on our constant talking about them. There's no way that, like, our love for Wavy the Wave hasn't somehow reached Tulane because they have been playing it up so much, and I, I just thoroughly appreciate them. They, they're, we, we, we are Syracuse fans, and we have uh, Syracuse in our hearts, and the athletic department does a lot of things to annoy us in that regard. Tulane is the athletic department that, that just knows what we Caters want. to us. They cater directly <laughs> give, to yeah, us. Give the people what they and want. I, Tulane gets whether or not Whether or not they know they're doing it, it doesn't really matter. They they just know what we feel in our hearts as fake Tulane fans, and they just give it directly to us on a, a strangely regular basis. <laughs> they honestly, they have to know. Their AD retweeted me once. Then there was that time. Okay, so. <laughs> then there was the time that I was sending you those links at like 10 o'clock at night of like all the wavy the wave shit you can buy in the Tulane store. <laughs> like I considered buying a like a like ten by five wave of the wave flag and putting it outside my house, <laughs> like just for the hell of it. A lot of getting into New Orleans, um, starting with the two, 2012 uh, Final Four, where if we had beat Ohio State, Sean and I were going to get to go. Uh, and then the following year, uh, we, I was going to go to the Tulane football game, and I had a death in the family, so I had to cancel that like last minute. And then uh, I'm supposed to go to the Baton, the Damon Baton Rouge last year and have a or next year and have a wedding that I'm in. Uh, shout out to Adam; he listens. 
yeah, thanks for planning. Uh, we've joked about this. Too, it wasn't his fault. Yeah, he planned. He, I don't know why we're talking about this, but whatever. He planned his wedding for the week, the weekend that it is. And as you remember, the LSU game was supposed to be the weekend before. Uh, uh, and then LSU moved it, and he couldn't move his wedding because you know you can't do that. So uh, yeah, so three zero for three in getting down to Louisiana, but it will happen eventually. And when it does, I'll probably uh, have been on you know some kind of bender and wind up buying some Tulane stuff. That's fine. Yeah, I'm definitely hitting up Tulane and seeing if I can get like a tour of the athletic department <laughs> before I get down there. I'm like, I'm not even kidding. John's just gonna get a job at Tulane. Yeah, that's. I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm gonna leave one <laughs> LA for the other LA. Perfect. <laughs> My wife is thrilled. All right. That's what we've always wanted. Yeah, that's exactly what we've always wanted. Um, so, Dan, why don't we get started with a game that, that we already kind of touched on a little bit this week. Um, and we don't have to go in-depth on these at all. Because um, I know most Syracuse fans have already tuned out once the Tulane talk started. Um, Utah-Washington. Um, obviously, you know, Joe Williams looked phenomenal um, against... UCLA, who is trash this year for some stupid reason, and if there's one troll move that USC still has in them, it's hiring Jim Mora away from UCLA. Um, maybe do it, USC. I just kind of want to see it. <laughs> Not going to lie. Um, be kind of funny. That said, because Clay Helton kind of turned it around and suddenly USC looks like a team full of four and five stars, I don't think you are. Again, you're welcome for uh, sparking you to this glorious comeback and how, once again, you're going to contend for a Pac-12 South title despite being the third or fourth best team in the division. Again, whatever. Um, But what do you see out of Utah that could potentially spur an upset against what looks like an unstoppable death machine in Washington? I think... um, I I don't know. I have a weird feeling about that game. I just think Utah... At night, uh, I guess it's it's actually kind of early there. It's what three thirty Eastern, so it's not yeah. So it's not at night, but Utah. Yeah, like I feel, you can go for it. Yeah, I, I feel like it's. Uh, I, there have been a lot of big high profile games there, and they're usually like Thursday, Friday nights since the Pac twelve. But they they just seem to win big games at home, and I have a. I just feel like it's not going to be that easy for Washington, and they still could make the playoff with a loss if they win the Pac twelve, but like. It just seems too obvious that Washington's going to run through this conference, and I just have this weird feeling that Utah is going to knock them off. I understand that I did not give you any reasons for it, but Utah plays solid D. Um, they run the ball. They control the clock. They bring running backs out of retirement to then get, like, 200 yards. Um, I, I just think that this is a – they play a type of, like, close uh, t- clock t- uh, control style that you see a lot of teams um, try when playing a top – top opponent and they just happen to have a decent amount of talent and are really well coached. So um, I think this one will be close no matter what. I think the, the 10 point, I think it's like a 10 or 10 and a half point line is way too much Oh yeah, uh, in favor of Washington. And I don't know. I just have a very strange feeling that Utah pulls this one out. See, I, I'm having some of the same. And that is because like Utah manages some crazy things at, at Rice Eccles. On top of that, look over Washington's schedule again. And tell me where the good team they've beaten yet is. And this is not to hate on Washington. But look down that schedule. And <coughs> honestly, Baylor's schedule compares more favorably 
if, if you take away the brand names and you take away the rankings that these teams might have had at the beginning of the season, blowout win over Rutgers, blowout win over Idaho, blowout win over Portland State, you barely beat Arizona, who's trash. You destroyed Stanford, but Stanford has revealed themselves to be nothing more than trash. Oregon, you scored 70 points on, which I applaud, and I think that is one of the better revenge moves I've seen in college football. That said, Oregon is one of the, if not the worst, passing defense in the entire uh, country. It's the worst. It's the worst. <laughs> it's, it's literally the worst. Con- confirmed. Um, and then Oregon State, also garbage. Like, So who was Washington really beat to this point? Um, the answer is no one. And that doesn't mean they can't beat everybody left on the schedule. Um, but I, as much as I like this Utah team, and then, sorry, excuse me, this Washington team a lot, and I would love to see them in the playoff, this is a team that could lose three more games this year. Like, no joke. The Utah game, the USC game, and the Washington State game are all, are all very ripe for losses. And because of how bad the Pac-12 North is, it still might come down, even if they suffer a loss here against USC, to the Apple Cup game. Yeah, it just... And I can't even really blame them because it's not like you go into the year expecting Oregon and Stanford to like and everybody be else in the back horrid and mediocre, respectively. Um, but that's just how it played out. So I, I think you're right. We, I, I feel pretty safe in calling Washington a, a for sure top ten team. Like oh, yeah. it's not like they've been close. Like they, except for the Arizona game, which was super weird. Uh, they've been crushing people. Um, but Utah's legit. I think Wazoo is uh, good and super weird and. You don't want to – I wouldn't want to face them with a playoff game on the line, especially yeah. with how vindictive and awful Mike Leach didn't be about things. Um, For a noon 30 or the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. And Definitely is that in on snow. The oh, yeah. Definitely in snow. Yeah. The, these are the two spots, as you identified, both teams that will that, – that step up for big games. Um, Utah, they're like – they're dead opposites. Like Utah – plays uh, this very run-oriented style uh, with solid defense. Wazoo is a crazy uh, Mike Leach offense and uh, sneakily getting better defense, and they can actually run the ball like a little, little, little bit. Um, they're like as different as two teams can be, and I would not want to play either of them with a playoff on the line and on the road, and that's exactly what Washington has to do. So I, I just feel like it's too obvious for Washington to run the table. It's just like they, they, they didn't they didn't like – they came up from such like a weird place where – they had all this hype going in, and after coming off a seven and six part of Dallas Bowl year, um, it just seems too convenient for them to just totally run the table and go. They could still, like I said, they could lose one of these games and then win the Pac-12 and go. Just because I still think uh, there's a lot that we have to see shake out with like West Virginia and Baylor, and and the Big Ten has to work itself out. Um, but I, I I struggle to see them going uh, undefeated, and Utah is probably the most obvious spot with the Apple Cup being a close second in terms of where they could falter. And the thing is, like, Utah hasn't... Like, Utah's really close to being undefeated as well, and against a better schedule, I'd contend. Um, you know, BYU is, is, is a fairly good team. Um, I'd say San Jose State, you know, their their record might not show it, but they're recruiting better than most of, of the group of five right now. Um, again, they shouldn't have lost that Cal game. They beat USC in, in a, one of my favorite games of the year so far. Um, they beat Arizona by more. Doesn't really mean anything, but whatever. Um, and then they went at UCLA in a game when UCLA threw about 70 times and seemed to have an offense again. Um, Utah can actually afford a loss, I think, more than Washington can. Um, 
especially if that loss is to Washington. Um, that Colorado game looms at the end of the season as a really fun, unexpected potential Pac-12 South play-in game. Um, yeah, th- th- there's a lot to like about um, Utah. There's a lot to like about Washington as well. But yeah, th- this isn't to yeah, this isn't to trash anybody. It's just to say that the Utes do look interesting, and they look like a team that maybe last year we got a little ahead of ourselves. Maybe this year is the year that Utah really contends for playoff berth. Yeah, I was going to bring the same thing up. I think I think Utah, and this just struck me, they remind me a ton of 2014 Georgia Tech. Where, yeah, like, yeah. you don't – I mean, not stylistically, obviously. They're different. Um, but, like, they have – they run through the schedule. They have, like, one loss uh, midway through. Um, but, like, if they win this game, uh, that A, that Colorado game, like you said, becomes, like, super intriguing. But if they win this game and then they get a rematch against Washington in the, in the Patriot Championship and win it, like – It'd be hard to keep them out, uh, especially when their one loss is what five by five on the road at Cal, which is like a weird. I mean, they should have won in a weird game, um, it, and obviously they they probably need a little help. But like, they remind me of uh, that. It just seems like they're a similar team. Obviously, Washington and Florida State aren't quite the same, um, but they they are very much in it. Obviously, they're not an obvious pick right now. But if they win this, then you'll start to hear some some buzz on Utah. I think big you know big time. Um, I think they'll be a top seven or eight team if they win this game, to be honest, because like one of Nebraska and Wisconsin has to lose this week um, because they're facing one another. Um, again, everyone would love to see Baylor just not be in the top ten. I think A&M might be putting the card before the horse. Florida State, a team that's in front of Utah right now, um, I think if they win, or even if, well, if they win, I think Clemson could fall behind Utah. Um, if Florida State loses, Florida State's definitely falling behind Utah. I mean, there's a lot of teams in front of them um, that are just going to fall uh, by default this week. Um, and again, that, that makes it interesting uh, to see, you know, and this isn't to, to bank on a Utah win. Although, I mean, I'm not rooting for anybody on Saturday. I'm just rooting for a fun game. But, uh, yeah, I, I do feel like, you know, a Utah win definitely vaults them right into the playoff uh, conversation, even more so than they were last year. Yeah, and based on now two teams, the two teams that are, are hinging this coming up in the last like five minutes, um, I've thought about writing about this. Uh, I just need to find the evidence as it would like two things that like flew way under the radar. But I'm presenting uh, a, Joe, a Joey Galloway curse for college football. <laughs> Every year, Joey Galloway has one team in his playoff that doesn't make a lot of sense. In 2015, ahead of last year, and I distinctly remember this, he chose Georgia Tech to go to the playoff. This is coming off of their very nice year. And, like, okay, but Georgia Tech, like, you know, they were really good, but did everyone expect them to, like, go to the playoff? No, I think people expected them to be better than 3-9. and nine. They went 3-9. and nine. This year, his kind of out-of-the-box playoff pick was UCLA. Yeah. UCLA is awful. <laughs> well, their offensive line uh, just decided to let Josh Rosen die. And they're going to ruin Josh Rosen. Yes. Um, so I, I think we are – I think next year – if he goes and makes some weird prediction where, like, he has Nebraska going to the playoff and Nebraska goes 4-8, and eight, I think we officially have a thing where Joey Galloway will straight-up curse one of the teams before the season. <laughs> and not just, like, they're going to miss the playoffs in 8-4. and four. Like, Joey Galloway will pick you to make the playoff, and you will fall off a cliff. And you will go 4-8 and eight or 3-9, and nine, and you will just be horrendous. Um, I really hope that this is proven true by history. Counter to the Joey Galloway curse, because it's funny you mentioned him, because I do have a Joey Galloway factoid uh, to share. Uh, Joey Galloway picked Syracuse to win the Big East in 2012. 
I do remember that he was widely mocked, and it ended up being true-ish. <laughs> the only Although, a four-way the tie, interest, whatever. The Big East in 2012, you had like a, a solid 40% chance to get it right if you just picked anyone. So, um, yeah. Me, just let it be known that that was the only chance Rutgers has ever had to win a real conference outright, and they proceeded to not do so because they just couldn't because get it. They, because they lost to an ass UConn team. Yeah. <laughs> At home, I think. Way to go, If guys. I remember correctly. Way to go. Speaking uh, of UConn, LOL. Moving on. Oh, man. This whole week for them <laughs> has just been great. The fact that the Civil Conflict Trophy was left on the field. I laughed. I, like, legitimately laughed really hard when I saw that happen. Like, when I read those tweets, I was like, this is the greatest. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. The thing is, like, UConn fans are actually pissed about, like, not, they're not pissed about the trophy being left. They're just pissed at Bob Diaco at this point. I was like, I saw No Escalators was tweeting about it, and, like, the UConn blog did, too. Like, it's just stupid. Like, he just doubled down on the whole thing. And then pretended like he didn't. Like, right. it was... It's baffling because it's, A, it was so stupid to begin with. Like, it was goofy when it happened. It's still stupid. But, like, it, it's obfuscating, like, the fact that Diaco is probably a pretty decent coach. And, like, while UConn isn't having a great season, like, you have pretty baseline expectations of like it's going to take a while for you going to be consistently good if they ever do get that uh and he's won some games that he shouldn't win like bob diaco is like nowhere near like the hot seat or anything like he's he's been a he's done a very good job at uconn yeah, he's and, pissing people he, off. and he's pissing people off because the only attention uconn gets aside from like a minute when they beat houston last year when they beat navy this year like the only attention that uconn's getting oh they didn't beat navy they beat uh they the cincinnati navy. and they lost, they the, lost navy. the navy because they decided not to run a last play <laughs> They beat Cincinnati, which, like, looks good, but then, like, you look at Cincinnati, you're like, that's not actually that good. Um, either way, like, the attention they're getting is for this really stupid campaign that he led to start this rivalry that no one else is interested in. I don't think UConn's interested in it. Like, they don't care. He's the only one who cares. And then everyone's like, well, you made this a big deal. And then he's like, no, I didn't. UCF was totally into it. And, like, no, they said at the moment they didn't want to be a part of it. They said the following year they didn't want to be a part of it. They very clearly don't want to be a part of it now. At no point does UCF ever indicated any interest in this trophy. And Bob Diaco is just trying to make it a thing. And, Bob, fetch is not a thing. You can't make it a thing. You can't make fetch happen. So, so good. Um, All right. So, to end our show, Dan, if you had to pick right now, and that's not based on what teams currently look like, it's knowing what the schedule lays out as because – as people who talk about college football and write about college football, we usually have a good idea of where the rest of the road stands for these teams. Who is your top four, um, if, if you had to say today? Top four today, not, not, not projecting forward. Oh, no, projecting forward. Well, yeah, projecting forward. Like, knowing what you know about the rest of these schedules, I mean, you don't have to go exact, but knowing what you know about a lot of these remaining schedules, who are you seeing slotted into this thing? All right. Um, I think Alabama is clear number one. I do not see them losing. Um, I just they just look so good. What about Auburn? Uh, that'd be so. That'd be hilarious. Um, <laughs> Auburn does look like they 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 like found their spirit animal. Like Auburn decided mid year, like oh yeah, remember when we were really good when we just ran the ball eighty percent of the time and did it in interesting ways and played good D. And uh, so good on Dust Malzahn to like rediscover what made his team good. You know, novel idea after two years. Just eating of, the Brett Bielema alive. That's yeah, that, that, I, that, I picked Arkansas on that game, and I was like, oh, Auburn's not for real. Like, we'll see. And then they just devoured Arkansas. I was like, oh, okay. Makes um, me very much reevaluate that Clemson-Auburn game in the beginning of the year. 
Well, that was because if you watch that, like watching that game was the most perplexing. I was I was like bad. I don't care about Auburn in the least. I have no opinions about Auburn, uh, like in terms of like whether I like them or not. I was getting angry at Dustin Elzon for how he handled his quarterbacks. It was the most bizarre handling of a quarterback situation since uh, Mike Veely decided to announce that we were going to run a trick play before before it happened when Cody Catalina ran onto the field. <laughs> um, he, he was rotating guys in and like play by play. It was insane. So he finally just like Sean White is the least bad, and then we're going to run the ball with Terryon Johnson and uh, who's the other guy whose name is escaping me? They both have K K names. Right. I was just writing the other day. Yeah. This is a, we're very professional. I'm a college football writer. I read about this every day. Um, yeah, they have like 1,200. I they have like 1,200 yards and 12 touchdowns between them. They they do their interesting uh, like option based stuff, and then they do all their just pulling. And it's such a cool running attack that isn't really used anywhere else. And it's just like they weren't running that offense for like a year and a half. So I'm I'm very glad to see them back at it. I think Alabama probably beats them by like 10 um, at Jordan at Jordan Her, um, <laughs> but. Uh, I think it should be like fairly competitive, but I, I think Alabama is just really good. Um, Michigan, Ohio State is tough. It's got to be one of those two. Um, I think Michigan. I think you just have to lean Michigan just based on the way they beat people, and you know they're going to be out for like bloodthirsty revenge this year. Um, and Ohio State, I think we just see their warts a little bit more, um, and their youth kind of showed itself at Penn State. I do think there's a very good chance that, like, between now and then they develop, and because those guys are so young and there's so many sophomores involved, um, I just I feel like it's a it's a coin flip ish game, and I'm like 52 percent confident that that Michigan wins it, um, and I think they'll they'll beat Wisconsin or whomever they face uh, in the title game. Um, I'm sticking with Clemson. Uh, I'm not super impressed by Clemson, but I just feel like uh, the tiebreakers are, are in their favor at this point. The tiebreakers are in their favor. Um, I think they'll beat Florida State. I think they'll probably run the table and get, I'll say, the three seed just because I think Michigan will probably, at this point, run the table. And this all seems like it's going to work out too easily. Uh, so I think in, you know, we talked to Washington and Utah. Uh, we both kind of seem like we think Washington will drop one here. I'm going to say Washington loses. I'm going to say Utah doesn't make it. I'm going, I don't trust Baylor or West Virginia. I think they're both good teams. I do not trust them. I think Louisville's going to get it. I think Louisville sneaks into the four spot uh, as an at-large for the first time in playoff history. And I think uh, in that scenario, Louisville, Alabama, sign me up. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, like, you know, Alabama, the only thing that takes down Nick Saban Alabama teams is superstar, like, top-level quarterbacks that can run. Um, like, look at all the quarterbacks that have beaten Saban recently. It, Chad Kelly, um, Obviously, Deshaun Watson didn't beat him, but like, easily could have. Like, it was a, a special team side of that game. Um, Johnny Manziel, uh, the one superhero performance from Trevor Knight, who is not as good as he was in that game, but was like amazing in that game when he was at Oklahoma. Like, they all kind of profile this one way. And Lamar Jackson is a better athlete in terms of running the ball than any of them. Um, and he can he's improving by as a passer by like the minute. Um, I don't think that Louisville would win that game, but I think they would put the fear of God in Nick Saban that whole week or that whole like month build up. So sign me up for that. Um, well, I'd be curious to see how the committee handles that because what we haven't seen necessarily um, from a, I mean, maybe we did a little bit in the first year, I, though I don't think Trayvon Boykin was necessarily what Lamar Jackson is. 
by any means, but I think leaving out college football's best player um, when there's a clear argument to be had uh, would be a very tough call for them, especially when they don't really use advanced metrics or analytics to separate these teams at all. It's really just an open discussion of what ends up being, to me, brand uh, awareness, uh, marketability, um, which players are, are, you know, most kind of notable for the product, which is the college football playoff. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think you're right. Um, I think if Washington, Washington can drop a game, but I just don't know if they end up dropping two. Um, I think that Louisville can get in based on strength of schedule over a one-loss Baylor or West Virginia. Because if you look at the rest of that conference, um, if either of those teams have one loss, that means that Oklahoma probably has at least three. Um, that means that if one of those, if both of those teams have one loss, something else has happened. Um, yeah, again, there's just a lot of there's too much to digest. I don't think an undefeated Western Michigan or Boise State gets in nope. to the top four, but um, I'd be very curious to see if a lot of uh, the at-large teams. Uh, take on water if you could see two um, two group of five teams get in um, a la what was it 2000 was it 2010 when TCU and Boise faced one another in the Fiesta Bowl somewhere around there yeah 2010 was, if, if, if they both went undefeated I don't know could they even make that happen could they get both of those in a New Year's Six game because they'd have to put one in you have, to put one in, you have to put one in by mandate, but then I'm curious the other. It would really just depend on how much... What everyone else looked like. It would everyone else look like, because the one good thing about this system is that it's not like the old one with BCS, where the only guaranteed spots were like the top four, and then everything else, like you could just leapfrog with brand up to like 12 or 14 or whatever it was. So as long as... Which is why you had like... 10 and 3 Georgia in a, in a great game every year, even though, like, half the time they weren't that good. Yeah, or like Notre Dame getting smoked by uh, Oregon State and, like, the Sugar Bowl. You mean Bowl everyone? With, yeah. You mean every, every year? Every, every year, everyone. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, uh, I, I think it'd be unlikely. But, you know, Bill Connolly had a great article on SB Nation today talking about how likely it is a lot of these top teams take on two losses by end of year. And, and that would kind of test the committee a bit um, to see if both teams could leap. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Uh, I'll give my quick playoff picks, and then we can uh, give people their lives back after over an hour of talking. Um, I agree with you on Bama. I think Auburn's going to test them. I don't think anyone from the East is going to touch them. It's going to be another Atlanta coronation ceremony for those guys. Um, I think Michigan's too good and, and too vengeful. Um, two of their final opponents, obviously they have a bone to pick with. Uh, that's Michigan State and Ohio State. If they're going to drop one, it's one of those. Uh, but I see Michigan getting through. Um, I think Clemson gets through. And then, yeah, that fourth spot's tough. Um, West Virginia and Baylor haven't played the uh, the caliber of non-conference schedules that they need to to really hold up with a loss. Um, if I think even if Washington's there, I think if, if you look at, if, you, if you're between a one-loss Washington and a one-loss uh, Baylor or Western Michigan, I think you're going with Washington. Um, I yeah, I think that the Big 12 situation just kind of cannibalizes one another. Um, I think a one-loss Washington might get pushed out by Louisville, like you said. Um, the one issue for Louisville, well, one blessing and curse for Louisville is going to be their last, uh, their last group of opponents are an improving but still not great Kentucky team, 
uh, Virginia, BC, and Wake. Um, so you're going to have four games no one cares about, but also four opportunities for Lamar Jackson to put up video game numbers again. And that's going to be kind of the uh, the bar, is that can you lay waste to these teams? Because that's going to be the mandate on them. Like This was kind of the case for um, a bunch of other teams in the past, where like like you know both post playoff and, and pre playoff of like can you just destroy teams um, as best you can and I think that's in part how Ohio State got in over TCU and Baylor um, you know even going way back into BCS I think it's how you know Colorado might have gotten screwed out of um, playing for a championship same with Oregon in the past like it was style points and, and I think Louisville is going to be playing for style points and Bobby Petrino is very good at uh, just spite beating the hell out of opponents and I think he'll do it um, if it means kind of putting them apart from you know your Washington and and, and, Cl- and uh, sorry Baylor and uh, West Virginia but again that assumes that both West Virginia and Baylor lose a game if if one of them doesn't and obviously one of them has to because they play each other on the last weekend I think an undefeated Big 12 team unfortunately gets in despite the fact that I think they'd be worse than several one-loss teams including Washington and Louisville yeah, and real quick, uh, we actually talked about this in the office and had an article to open about it on the spun. Uh, the dream situation for, um, I guess, probably blue blood college football fans and also the people who run college football is you have Ohio State beat Michigan in like a classic, and then Ohio State win the Big Ten title, and Michigan did it in as an at large, and then you have a semifinal of Alabama Clemson title rematch or Alabama Louisville, if you like that, and then you have a, the game rematch in the other semifinal. And everyone in college football that makes any money would just go nuts. Alas. Um, all right. That's a fun note <laughs> to end on. Um, Dan, thank you, as always, for joining. Much appreciated. Yes. Look forward to beating the buys this week. Yep. We'll be facing the fight and buys. Uh, it's on uh, ESPN 8, the Ocho, for those who are looking to find it. Um, but that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to a bi-week edition of Tronians at Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and whatever other service you use. And uh, go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.